Welcome to the Strong Single and Human podcast, a real look at single parenting, the ups and downs and how to navigate life with kids on your own while keeping sane. Covering subjects such as domestic violence through to fussy eaters and solo dating. I'm your host, Claire Martin. Welcome. Hi, my guest this week has been working in the area of drug education for the past 25 years and has been contracted by many organizations to give regular updates on current drug trends. Through his own business, Drug and Alcohol Research and Training Australia, he provides education and training to a wide range of audiences, presenting educational sessions to hundreds of schools, school communities right across Australia, delivering information to students, teachers and parents, ensuring they have access to good quality information and best practice drug education. He's an accomplished author of the book Teenage Alcohol, Teenagers, Alcohol and Drugs, and his research and information has appeared in many other publications. He has also regularly appeared in the media and is regarded as the key social commentator with interviews on television programs such as Sunrise Today and The Project. Hi, Paul. Welcome. Thanks for finding the time to, in your busy schedule to come and speak to us. Um, hi, Claire. Nice to be here. And thank you for that introduction. It does ramble a bit, doesn't it? That introduction goes on for a while. It's all right. You've done so many things. You've educated so many people. It's all good. No, it's fine. So, hey, look, let's start with why did you get involved in drug and alcohol research? Oh, look, um, I, I suppose it's one of the questions I get asked most by young people, like how did you get into this kind of field? And it was really by accident. If you went back to oh. my school, kind of uh, my high school life, if you uh, spoke to anyone I went to school with, they would say, number one, you know, for me to get into public speaking, it's kind of bizarre. It's certainly, it certainly wasn't ever something I wanted to do. And as far as alcohol and drugs are concerned, that, they weren't even on my radar when I was at high school. Mm. So um, I was trained as a, high, uh, as a primary school teacher um, in WA. Um, and um, I always promised I'd leave teaching when I started hating kids. <laughs> Unfortunately, I started, <laughs> well, that's I started disliking kids. And so I, I thought that yeah, I have to leave. So I left. I did a couple of different things. And um, I got offered a job in Sydney um, just purely by accident. And um, I moved into kind of the drug and alcohol field. In, um, uh, and um, then I ended up at a national research centre. Um, at the University of New South Wales. And um, I was there for quite a while. And then schools started to call and say, can we have a researcher come in and uh, talk about drugs to our kids? Uh, of course, none of them wanted to do it. And they said, look, you used to be a teacher. Why don't you, know, why don't you do it? And um, because I was at a research centre, the, my boss at the time said, look, if you're going to do this, you can do it properly. You can look at the research and see what works and what doesn't. And that was a fantastic kind of, you know, opening into kind of doing this right, if that makes any sense. So I looked at the research, what, what we knew didn't work and what did doesn't work and um, what does and doesn't work. And, um, yeah, I started. That was a very, very long time ago. And um, then I started my own business. I suppose I moved from the research centre about 2007 is when I started Data, my own mm -hmm. company. Yeah. And now, as you said, I, I go to... In a typical year, not a COVID year, but in a typical year, yeah. I go physically 
um, have contact with about 200 schools across the country and speak to about 120,000 young people. But of course, wow. in the last, like last year and this year, I'm still having that contact with schools that most schools that I visit have just gone online. Um, and so, uh, yeah, lot, an awful lot of young people. And uh, I love what I do. I mean, I don't think I could do what I do without loving it. I think you have to have a passion and certainly mm. um, uh, the... Uh, I suppose that my kind of goal is to keep kids as safe as possible and very importantly to try to try to give them the information they want to know rather than what we think they need to know if that makes yeah. any sense um yeah and I like what you said about keeping kids as safe as possible because look at the end of the day We've all been kids. We all tried things that maybe our parents didn't want us to try or whatever. Kids will be kids as such, but it's about educating them to be as safe as possible when experimenting. Yeah, look, I think um, I make, I kind of have two very clear statements here around young people. First off, we need Mm. to acknowledge that there are many, many young people who choose not to drink, in fact, more than we've ever really seen before. We've got the highest number of non-drinkers currently, not only in Australia, but around the world. So um, we need to acknowledge that there are a group of kids who won't drink alcohol, a a lot of young people who won't use illegal drugs, and that's we have to acknowledge that. But on the flip side, I see my job really, I suppose, as um, putting pillows around young people. So there's nothing we can do, as you've just said, to stop some young people from doing silly things that they're going through adolescence, uh, time where they're, you know, doing silly things. Uh, We really can't stop that. As much as we'd love to do that, we can't. So if I can put, give them little tips and strategies to keep them safer themselves and their friends, number one, they all want to no kit. Very few kids actually drink alcohol or use drugs to deliberately hurt themselves. You know, that small no, group that do yeah. have a lot of other problems. But most kids do it to have fun. They don't want to hurt themselves. So if you give yeah. them information to keep them safer, then um, they're just going to lap it up. And that's essentially yeah. what hopefully, fingers crossed, that's what happens with what I do in schools. So, um, certainly I get a great response from kids. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So, look, I'm going to get into the crux of the matter. Me being a single mum of a kid, of, of, a son, of my son, and he's obviously at no drug-taking age being five. But um, what, in your experience, what age do, like, kids start to experiment? When should we as parents start to get worried and have conversations and start to um, educate them as such as to what they're doing? Well, I think um, the most important thing is for parents, as soon as you start giving your kids drugs, you should start talking about them. And the reality is today um, we live in quite a different world than when I was growing up. Mm. You know, now we have baby Nurofen, baby Panadol. I mean, we are we are we are teaching our kids to be drug takers from a very 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 yeah. early age. And unfortunately, I think when we think of drugs, we think of illegal drugs, heroin, ecstasy, cannabis, whatever. We don't actually think that you know we've got legal drugs, illegal and pharmaceutical. We've got like a, a, a whole pile of different kind of different drugs. Yeah. And we are we train our kids. Um, pharmaceutical companies have been incredibly effective at training people to, if you've got something wrong with you, pop a pill. Mm. If you've got something wrong with you, uh, take this take this drug, whatever it may be. So it's no surprise when they get to their teen years that some kids are going to go, look, I want to have a good time. I'll take a pill. Uh, you know, we train them. So 
what I say to parents of very young kids is think about the last time your your child had a headache, for example. And well, for many parents, it's the automatic response is go and grab a Panadol, go and grab a Dispirin. Now, that the reality about headaches, if you look at any of the research about child or adolescent headaches, the vast majority of them are caused by dehydration. They haven't drunk enough water. It's that simple. So the first immediate response when your kid says you have a headache is go and get a glass of water. That would be the first. But of course, there are some who, of course, have a headache for other reasons. And um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try, you shouldn't be using medication that ease any kind of pain and suffering. Oh, yeah. But talk about it. Yeah. So, you know, the next time your child, you know, you're going to give them a disprin or an aspirin or something, grab the box and say, now look, this is these are the instructions. This is how you use. We read this before we take what's in this box. I don't know about you, but I come from a time where when I went to uh, a doctor when I was a child, I still remember, uh, you know, being uh, before the consultation finished, the doctor would say, well, you're going to have this medication and this is what this will do. They will, they would spend the time actually, if they didn't tell you, they told your parents and you heard it. Yeah. Now in the day of a five minute consultation, you go in, you go out, you come out with a prescription. And if you don't come out with a prescription, you're pretty upset. Yeah. Um, so you don't have that conversation about um, about the, the medication you're giving and what that results in. And certainly what I believe is one of the greatest issues with our teens is that they don't have respect for drugs. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't respect the the potential that something could go wrong. You know, there are people who die every day, I'm sure in Australia, I know around the world, but every day from prescription medication, well, a drug they got from a doctor. Well, exactly. I mean, we can see that with the likes of, and we, if we look at celebrities that have died, Prince, Keith Ledger, you know, um, Michael Jackson, they were all on prescription medication that meant that they just overtook and and we don't know what the combination was or anything like that but you know it was a combination or it was just that they overtook or you know and they didn't want to kill themselves it wasn't like they were committing suicide it was just that they made a mistake yeah and uh, there are also some people who literally have taken the same medication for every, every day for years and years take it one day and they have an adverse reaction yeah um i think you know the importance of you know, if you have a ch- particularly, you know, uh, a child who has a condition like um, diabetes, epilepsy, you know, one of those mm. drugs that, you know, medications are so incredibly important um, to have that really high quality conversation with your child about, yeah. um, okay, this is your medication. How do you use it appropriately? Looking at the labeling, all that stuff. What surprises me so often is that um, I'll get young people come up to me after my presentation and say, look, I have, I'll give the example of epilepsy. That's a, that's quite a, a quite a, a frequent one mm. where, and they'll say, "Look, I have um, epilepsy, and I'm now, you know, drinking alcohol occasionally when I go to parties. These are year tens, and um, does is there a, shouldn't I? You know, what's the link between um, should I mix alcohol with yeah. my medication? And I look at them and I go. I'm not the person no. you should be talking to about this. No. But the problem is, of course, that as I always say to these kids, how old were you? You know, you go to a special, a specialist and they will say yes. And they go, how long have you been seeing them for? Some of them have been seeing them for three, four, five years, sometimes longer. Mm. Um, and of course, when they first met these kids, they were like 11, 12. They certainly weren't going to be drinking alcohol. They are now 15, 16. They're entering a different time. 
and the, the specialist still sees them as a 11 or 12 year old. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that I think parents really do have to remember that if you, you're giving any medication, whether it is as simple as, you know, for a headache or if they have um, actually, uh, they've been diagnosed as having a specific medical condition, um, you know, keep talking about the medication. Not in a lecture way, but just a natural way of, yeah. you know, this, that's the key, a conversation, keep, keeping connected to your kids. Yeah, because it is quite interesting because I do have my concerns regarding things that we can buy over the counter, things like melatonin, for example, sake, right? You know, people give their children when they're not able to sleep or when there's a difficult you know with when they're not able to sleep basically and um you've giving your child melatonin but if you give them to it on a regular basis what what are the impacts of actually giving them a certain something like that on a regular basis and I don't know and I haven't researched it but I do sit there and I'm sort of going well aren't you drugging your child to go to sleep it's like giving them Phenergan as such and I have used both I have to say I've put my hand up I have been that desperate <laughs> mum on an airplane flying 24 Whoa. hours with a two-year-old and I have given him Phenergan to give him some sleep so mummy gets you know, at uh, least a sane child when he wakes up or gets off the plane the other end. But like, but like you say, you know, it is, I, I do, I am concerned with the likes of things like melatonin because you're then giving them something that should naturally occur in the brain, but you're then, is in, and, and to a certain extent leading into drugs like MDMA and various different things like that. If you take that too regularly, you're then kicking off receptors in the brain that basically you know, can impact later on in life, I suppose. Yeah, look, I think um, I don't know enough about melatonin to, to know, you know, what no, the, the potential. But I think, you know, the, the fact that you just said I don't know either, I think is really important. I think when you're putting anything, when you are providing your your child something, and I would say very, very importantly, when they are very, very young, mm. you know, um, as soon as they can, as soon as they can understand they're at an age where they're of an understanding that you can sit and look at the back of a box and say, these are the instructions that go with this. Um, and if you take them as instructed, then you know what? You're safe. That leads into a great conversation a little bit later in life when you are faced with things like ecstasy mdma where mm. that doesn't come in a box there are no instructions linked to it so uh, you know um that's uh, you know that it's a perfect lead-in you're you've started those conversations nice and early and you know there is no um there's no like silver bullet here you can't i think parents there are some parents who would love to inoculate their kids from you know any future risk of harm or associated with alcohol and other drugs and uh, there is none there is absolutely mm. nothing you can do to to inoculate your child. But what you can do is start with a really, really solid foundation, nice and young, of talking to your child, being honest with them, and not only talk about their drug use. And remember, if you are giving them a baby Panadol, a, a you know, whatever, mm. you are giving them a drug yeah. and you need to talk that through and what that means. Um, and if you establish that, really you know, build that strong foundation, those good lines of communication, fingers crossed, they will be able to be maintained as they get older. Of course, it gets harder as they get older because you develop, you end up with a different relationship with your child. 
um, yeah. because when they're very young, when they're in primary school, you have a um, a, 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 a managing relationship. But when you actually go into particularly the first few years of high school, you're going into a consulting relationship. You have to change from a manager to a consultant. Yeah. And it's how you manage that really tough time, really tough time in early adolescence. Yeah. And you've got a while to go until you hit that. I but, know, but I'm still not looking forward to it. He's bad enough at five. So, um, <laughs> well, you're dealing with different nightmare. issues at five, but I think certainly, you know, it is, it's about that communication. Oh, look, I, yeah, look, I agree. I agree. So, so touching on that, okay. So I know you're having those conversations with your child about drug and stuff like drugs and alcohol and things like that. So like, I'll put my hand up. I've done drugs. I've done alcohol. Um, and yeah, it's, I'm lucky in a way because I didn't do it till really late in life. I didn't do it till alcohol was very early but drugs wasn't until I like my 30s here we go I feel like I'm cathartically confessing to you now but like <laughs> yeah oh no Be that's okay no 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 that's okay much. no like <laughs> I have a child now we don't go into that area ever but um but the thing is I've obviously done drugs I've done alcohol I've done really stupid things but is that something as a parent that you should be having a conversation with your child and saying, look, I've done it. This is my experiences with it. Um, you know, you need to be careful in this area and that area. And blah. Or do you, or do you not actually, because like sometimes I think monkey see monkey do and they go, Oh, well, you did it. So that's okay. I can do it. And you are sort of then justifying them experimenting when as a parent, you don't really, like you said, you don't really want them to do something that's going to harm them. But, also, you did it. So it's sort of like double standards as such. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, every parent um, will eventually face a become the really difficult conversation <clears throat> that begins with, well, what did you do when you did you take drugs when you were yeah. young? Every parent will face that at some point. Well, almost every parent. Mm. And um, I think every parent has to be prepared and and well and well planned for mm. the response. Um it's a question I get asked a lot and I would say, and not everybody, um, not every parenting, um, and I don't profess to be a parenting expert, but around oh, our public no, no, no. kind of know the research or whatever, but yeah. certainly, you know, every, there are parenting experts who have very different views on this, but my view is certainly the key is, uh, is to be honest. I think if you want to maintain a good positive relationship with your child, you have to have honesty. Mm. Now, that does not mean that, um, and your son is five, is that yeah, correct? he is. So. Now, at the age of five, I would not sit down He's with him and worried. say, oh, by the way, I use heroin yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's something that you use as a confessional, no. but I think the time when they are, when they're going to ask you, You've got to be prepared. Yeah. And I believe it's, um, as I said, I think honesty is the best policy, but honesty doesn't mean you have to say, you have to tell tell them everything. I think you've got to be actually careful about how you're honest. So now if you are still continuing to use drugs, mm. you've got another issue altogether. Oh, yeah. But if you stopped, then my response would be around, around uh, illegal drugs is, um, yeah, if you if you did, you say yes, I did. But this is why. I, but this this and this happened, and I made a decision to not do it again. Yeah. Now I think it, you always have to look at why stop because most people who did use any 
um, illegal drugs, the vast majority of people had a really good time. I mean, you could lie and say everyone had a terrible time, but that's that's an absolute lie. It Why is. would people do it? Uh, so, no, exactly. And also, like some people would do it on a regular basis, like every single week. Um, that was not where I it, like mine was definitely not in that realm it was but you've got to look at you know, why did you yeah. stop and you know you stop most people stop because number one the the costs started to outweigh the benefits it affected your relationships it affected your finances you had a really nasty experience you got sick you got caught by the police you did something something changed your view and I think that's what you focus on. You then need to kind of work out how you're going to have that conversation about saying, look, um, I would hope that you would make, there's a lot of information out there and I would hope that you would make a decision that kind of matches our family values, et cetera. Mm. I would be extremely disappointed if I discovered that you did because um, whatever, if that's how you yeah. feel. Um, but uh should you provide a safe space or say, as long as you tell me what you're doing, uh, I think the evidence shows quite clearly that's not most probably the best way to go. Because okay, I was wondering about that because some parents say, oh, look, you can try drugs, but the first time you try them, I want you to try them with me, like in the environment. And I sort of go, oh, wow, it's like I've been a teenager. And I go, there is no way I would want to be doing that with my parents, okay? Like you just yeah. don't do it. You do it with your peer group or whatever. Like it's not something – It's not something. and look, if you've got that relationship with your child, then great, awesome. But I don't know whether that's – That's know a pretty kind of bizarre yeah. relationship yeah. as well. I mean, is that really a parent-child relationship and how, how – um, uh, how positive is that going to be and how is it looked upon by young people yeah. because the most interesting thing is is that you speak to young people about this area for example there's some great stuff about alcohol and you yeah. know providing two drinks to take to a party and you know how protective or non-protective it is and it's kind of interesting when you talk to kids who parents do give them alcohol and you say um, what message you ask kids what message do you get from that do you think you know they'll, they'll say all those wonderful things like my parents trust me and all of that stuff yeah. and they also turn around and they go well my parents support my use of alcohol that's really the message they get they get the message of well it's okay to drink now this is if they're 18 that's fine if this yeah. every parent has their own choice decisions to make here but you know when they're 14 or 15 which is when many parents are actually providing alcohol to their, to their teens to take to a party. Yeah. Um, is that really the message you want your child to get at 14 or 15, that you support their use of alcohol at 14, 15? I, I think if that is the message that you support, and it's not, from, not up to me to say what you do or you don't do, but um, then my suggestion is, you, you, you know, you kind of um, you lobby to get the law changed. But, yeah. you know, there's a reason why we say, Young people shouldn't be drinking alcohol at 14, 15. And um, I just love it when a parent turns around to me and says, oh, I drank at 14, 15. There's nothing wrong with me. And I look at them and I go, there's so many things wrong with you. I can't even begin to believe it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, no. You know, that someone would come up and say to someone like me, I drank at 14, 15, there's nothing wrong. I mean, if you look at so many of those people who were drinking at 14, 15, yeah. if you really kind of put a mirror, if you look in the mirror and look, you're most probably drinking daily. You're most probably drinking yeah. a reasonable amount of alcohol because that's what the research says. The early you drink what we know and the more regularly you drink, 
what will happen is the greater problems you'll have as you get older. Yeah. The evidence is very clear there. Yeah. You know, if you can delay drinking, if you can delay drug use, uh, it's 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 a better thing yeah. to do. Oh, look, and I completely agree. Like, I know people say, oh, you know, smoking marijuana when you're in your teens is like, okay. But actually, the it's, and I'm, I'm sure you can back me up here, but I'm not sure I'm saying the right thing. But like the research has been that if you're smoking marijuana in your teens, the effects that it has on your brain and, uh, you know, um, mental illness later down the track and stuff like that is is not good. So, you know. Well, the problem with the problem with most illicit drugs is that we don't have amazing evidence in the area of the impact on an adolescent brain. We we know a lot about alcohol. Yeah. Absolutely, the evidence is so clear: delay, 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 delay. Try to delay their first drink for as long as you possibly can. The evidence is clear. We have brain imaging, all of that sort of stuff. Now, this doesn't not mean and really importantly it doesn't result in brain damage so yeah. i think that's one of the greatest kind of problems with this research is people look at this and say well i drank when i was young i don't have brain damage i'm a fully functioning adult with a great great life and wonderful family which is true but what we can say is that it it kind of there's a loss of potential Will you reach your full potential if you're drinking regularly or heavily during that time no now when it comes to illicit drugs unfortunately and cannabis mm. is a great example of that. I'm just in the midst of doing my own podcasts and, um, you know, doing for Young People. And cannabis is proving to be the most difficult one because I do not believe in lying to young people. You know, we, we, we try so hard to scare them and shock them and all that kind of stuff. When it comes to cannabis, the evidence, the only thing you can say with any great certainty and even the pro-cannabis lobby will support this, is teens should not yeah. smoke cannabis. The evidence, the, the best piece of sort of, the, the best statement we could say about cannabis is that the earlier you start using and the more regularly you use during your teen years, the risk of, the greater yeah. risk of future problems. And when it comes to kind of mental health, cannabis does not cause a mental health problem, but what it can, what it does, it can unlock, yes. it can unlock or open up a pre-existing condition if you have a family history or have a predisposition to a problem. And so, um, you know, what I say to parents is that, you know, if someone unlocks schizophrenia in their early 20s, they finish their schooling, they've most probably got a relationship, you know, that kind of stuff. If you unlock something like schizophrenia or bipolar, and I've had experiences with families and uh, and young people who have unlocked schizophrenia mm. very early in their teens because of, you know, really heavy kind of cannabis use. It's a, yeah. it's devastating. I mean, they just, their life just stops, it stalls. And um, that's what you don't mm. want to see happen. So once again, it's a, you know, I, I would love to say that the area I work in is black and white, you know, because, you know, we live in a world where people want things to be black and white. No. It's not. There's shades of grey in between. And that's a, they're very hard messages to communicate, not only to uh, young people, but yeah. to parents yeah. as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And look, do, do you find that it's across the board? Like it's, it's like it's not that you're finding um, when you work with these families and stuff that they're from a particular background or, um, you know, they're a particular family unit like single parents or whatever. It's just across the board. It's like they come from all different types of backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think, um, you know, um, I work at some of the most elite, elite, elite schools in the country. And I also work at some of the, you know, most at with really at risk young people. And it doesn't matter what background you come from. Um, things can go wrong. I mean, uh, you know, I've worked with um, the most wonderful mum and dad in, um, and look, I have to say, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a doctor, I'm not uh, any of that stuff, but so many parents contact me um, because they've tried everything. They've, you know, they've, they've, they've spent thousands of dollars on psychologists mm. and psychiatrists and all this sort of stuff and don't really seem to get anywhere. And, um, I, you know, uh, I work with this one family who have, they're great mum and dad. They've got like uh, four kids and they've just got this one daughter who at the age of 14 just started literally walking out the door on a Friday night and not coming home until Tuesday. She was 14. And um, it was, uh, you couldn't have a more loving family. I mean, everything mm. just seems so wonderful. And well, we we kind of ended up working out what, because that kind of behaviour just doesn't come out of nowhere. There's it's, no. it's always no, no, something no. that is, no, has happened. No, yeah. And we ended up finding out what it was and we hope, I, certainly the last time I spoke to them, which was a few months ago, you know, she's very, very happy now working as an apprentice hairdresser and left school and oh, awesome. really incredibly happy. But, um, yeah, doesn't matter. I think certainly different groups, different socioeconomic kind of um, groups have kind of different problems mainly because mm. one group has money <laughs> and I think yeah. when you have a lot of money, um, quite often people think money is protective and to be quite honest, it's a reverse because yeah. um, alcohol costs money, drugs cost money. Different socioeconomic groups can have very different kind of problems. I mean, one, because there's a group that had a lot of money and sometimes people with a lot of money think that money is protective. In fact, it's a reverse um, because, of course, um, alcohol costs money and drugs can be expensive. And so there are certain drugs that you're more likely to see in people with a bit more money. So, for example, cocaine, which is a very expensive drug, it would be highly yeah. surprising to see that in um, in certain populations where there isn't a lot of money. Um, and, um, mm. of course, around the whole area of single family, you know, um, uh, single families, I mean, that's, there's a whole pile of other issues mm. there that often um, can pop up. I know um, there's been research over the years that look at the protective nature or the, the risk nature, risky nature of being in a single family, but Lots and lots of uh, mm. conflicting research in that area. Yeah, and look, I know, and look, I know from being a, a single parent in that you, you want to. Um, it's about setting the boundaries, and I'm really, I suppose, in a way, I'm the strict parent in the fact that he's with me you know, most of the time. And so therefore I'm setting the boundaries about getting up for school and doing schoolwork and et cetera, et cetera. So in a way I'm the ogre, but it's also I, with me, it's about taking a step back and going, okay, but I, I need to set the boundaries, but I also need to have a relationship so that I can have those conversations with him around when he gets older, around various different subjects. And um, also things that he tells me in confidence that I then need to not, I need to sort of take a step back and manage myself and not go off the deep end and like, go, what? Oh my God. You know, it's about going, okay, well, thank you for telling me that. But like, now we need to actually deal with what you've told me and trying to have a communication, a two-way communication because he's his own little person with his own mind and he'll do what he wants to do at the end. So yeah, it's, oh, it's difficult. And, and then obviously, 
bringing on board the father as well is, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, what kids love to do and kids become expert at is siloing their parents and setting them up against one another. Now, when there are two parents on the scene living in the same house, it's a little bit more difficult to silo, but they they can do it and they can do it very, very well. But when you live apart... Um, you know, they are masters of manipulation here and they get better and better as they get older. Yeah. And when it comes to things like alcohol drugs and particularly things like parties, you know, parties, gatherings, or as young people like to call them, gavos, which would quite possibly be the most bogan <laughs> word I've ever heard in my life. But I love um, all these words that have changed uh, from when we were uh, kids. So uh, it's all good. Gavos is such a, that's oh, a big gavos. thing. But, um, you know, they will, you know, in a split family, you know, the what you tend to find certainly I meet lots and lots of parents or get lots of emails from parents who say look I have my child during the week and there are all these boundaries and rules around alcohol around parties etc and then they go off to my partner's uh, home in the weekend and they're allowed to do what they want Um, how do I handle that and uh, what I always say to parents is that you know, if there is one thing you can agree on, one thing, it's around the issue around parties, alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, uh, sadly, I've been involved with a number of deaths um, over mm. the years, um, pretty awful ones. And um, almost, well, 13, al- 13 deaths of teenagers, almost all year 10s, so 15-year-olds, wow. and usually young women and uh, 12 of them were due to alcohol and almost all of them were at teenage parties where alcohol was either provided or condoned. And That's horrendous. You know, I think the worst thing for, for for parents, and they don't have to be split parents. I mean, certainly in families. I made a mistake one time where I said to parents, I only did it once. My, parent, my talk to parents, I, they're not interactive. I speak, they listen. But <laughs> I was at this talk and I said to them, um, turn to the person next to you and just kind of express your um, your feelings about privilege of alcohol. What, what are your views? Mm. Well, I had to stop it after a couple of minutes because literally people were strangling one another oh and gosh. they were the married people. I mean, they were they came together and it blew my mind that people had such vastly different opinions mm. here. And now you are never going to get a person who is going to say, I don't want, I want my child to not drink until they're 18 and you've got another parent who says, oh, um, they can drink, I'll provide them to, it'll teach them to drink responsibly. You are never going to get those two people no. to agree on, on the other side. But what you can do is a compromise. Yeah. What I always say to parents who do, who in that split family kind of um, situation is try to come to a compromise here where you are. Both, there's a united front in some ways. The most the key thing to this area, uh, apart from communication, is getting that united front. Both parents have the same view here. And, um, yeah, coming to the middle can be difficult for both parties, but it is vital that you do that because yeah. they will set you up against one another and that's where things go wrong and that's when tragedies occur. So I know you, you said earlier that you've been doing this for um, many years. And I've said 25. So over those years, have you seen the drug and alcohol um, sort of environment as such changing? Has there been like changes in usage, in, um, you know, um, who's using it, et cetera, et cetera? Or has that stayed sort of the Um, same? We, um, in in kind of the trade, we call it alcohol and other drugs to emphasize that alcohol is a drug. So I think it might might be great if I say that. Oh, no, I'm just to kind of clarify it. 
No, and I'm glad you do that because I think, uh, to me, alcohol is a socially acceptable drug that shouldn't be a socially acceptable drug because I actually think alcohol is more destructive um, than a lot of the yeah. other drugs out and, there. And look, certainly alcohol has so many kind of issues which we can talk about in a minute. But, yeah, but the, one of the great problems with the, my book, which you talked mm. about at the beginning, was that the publishers would not allow it to be called teenagers, alcohol, and other drugs. They wanted teenagers, drug, <laughs> um, alcohol, and oh. drugs. And, yeah, it's always been a, a bone of contention. But um, have things changed? Um, look, absolutely, over the years. The biggest, I think, change around alcohol has been that we now talk about it far more honestly than we once oh, did. Oh, okay. Um, I used to give talks um, uh, you know, close to 30 years. I've been doing this now, but 30 years ago, particularly in regional parts of the country where I start the talk and I'd start talking about alcohol, which I always usually do at the beginning. And I'd have people standing up and I and go, look, we came here to talk about real drugs, not alcohol. Um, and that that was an issue for a long time. And research, working at a research centre, we really couldn't get, um, very, very difficult to get stories about adverse effects of alcohol in, even into the papers, oh into the media. So we have seen a huge shift yeah. there. We're now talking about it much more honestly. Um, I think our next challenge is to try to get alcohol, the, the link between alcohol and cancer, really mm. out there. And certainly there's been a lot of effort put into that particularly because of lockdown and particularly about women in their in their 40s and 50s mm. who were drinking daily during lockdown and starting very early and continuing to drink all the way through the day. We know the harms associated with that, particularly breast yeah. cancer. It's so called having kids, alcohol. It's called having kids. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you're anaesthetising yourself really, <laughs> well, you? And this is it. Like I know because um, before we started the interview, I know we were talking about um, trauma, the effect of trauma and, alcohol, uh, and addiction. And I've mentioned before on other interviews that I follow Gabba Mate and blah, 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 because he's done 25, 30 years of um, research in uh, addiction and the links to trauma. But like having a child is not traumatic, but sometimes some of the experience users you have and have to deal with is traumatic. But again, all we're doing as parents when we drink, when we go, oh, we've got kids and oh my God, I'm going to have a glass of wine, mummy's medicine or whatever you want to call it. Basically, yeah, we're just hiding the pain or hiding the tiredness, exhaustion, the not knowing how to deal with the situation, which is it dealing with that situation? Well, no, not really. It's just yeah. asking. And it. I think you've also got to think all of the messages you're passing on to your kids oh. when you do that. You know, the one thing, um, if you ask any parent, what you know, whatever their views are about alcohol, um, the one thing you want is your child to grow up with healthy attitudes and, and values around alcohol. Yes. And, um, you know, one of my key messages to parents is that, um, there are lots of things you can do to make your child um, have a good, you know, good positive attitudes towards alcohol. But one of the key ones is please do not use alcohol um, uh, as um, as a way of dealing with stress. Mm. Be you know, if uh, what I used to say before COVID and before lockdown is, you know, on a Friday night when you get home from work and you're exhausted, don't just kind of flop into a chair and go, oh, I need a glass of wine mm. or I need a beer or something. Because, you know, the one thing you want your child to actually have around alcohol is if they do use it, they're using it for the inverted commas, in, for the right reasons. Mm. And whether that's to socialise, to have fun with friends, to, you know, enjoy with a meal or whatever, um that's you know the one thing you don't want them to do is to use alcohol to cope yeah. and that's a uh it's a kind of a dangerous cycle 
and it's certainly a cycle that has been uh, certainly um, identified through lockdowns mm. and, you know, the whole kind of it's wine o'clock and w- mum's wine time, mum's medicine, yeah. all that stuff. Um, we're not really going to see the impact of what the, what what happened during lockdown and, and is continuing to happen um, on our teens for some time. Yeah. But certainly through, you know, I have about 32,000 young people who follow me on Instagram and at the very beginning of the um, of the lockdown, uh, the original one last year, I asked young people to send me through photos of what they were doing on Saturday nights to keep connected, which they did, which was fantastic. So many of them sent a photo of themselves sitting in front of mum and dad drinking. And then oh. really sadly, I got quite a lot of messages from young people who were very worried about their parents drinking. Oh, um, really? Particularly their mothers. Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Mm. I had one who um, said... She was really, really scared. Her mum was drinking a bottle of wine a day Mm -hmm. and um, she had a little sister and she said, I don't think we've ever seen our mother drunk and she's literally drunk Drunk every every night. And, um, you know, so kids are watching you. Now, of course, they they, they can also... Definitely they can also agree. see really good behaviour too, and I think that's really important. Mm. If you're, if you're, I'm certainly not someone to say you know stop drinking in front of your kids because the fact of the matter is, if you drink responsibly, your kids are learning yes. a lot from monkey that as see, well. Monkey do exactly, yeah, right. exactly, yeah. and they pick that up. Yeah. So it's not about parents hiding the alcohol when they hit a certain age, or but making it some kind of you know bad thing that no one should ever do because it's part of the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't drink myself. It's not something I've ever done. I've no, I'm a two never been of wine, interested. So I can't. Yeah, no. I'm a- but you know, so I'm not. I'm not trying to stop people from drinking alcohol. That's you know, that's it's part of the part of our life. Okay, that's the end of part one of the podcast with Paul Dillon. Keep tuned for part two coming next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please hit subscribe wherever you like to hear podcasts. If you'd like to support us further, share this episode with your friends and family on all the usual social media platforms that you're normally on. And finally, drop us a review on iTunes as I'd love to hear your thoughts, comments and ideas. It all helps me to understand and produce awesome content that I know you're going to want to hear like this. If you want to check out past episodes, write to us, appear on the podcast or for links, resources and show notes, go to our website, www.strongsingleandhuman.com. We are also on all the usual social media platforms, Insta, Facey and Twitter. Have a wonderful week and I hope to see you back here again soon. Be kind to yourself and remember, no one's perfect and we're all just putting one foot in front of the other and doing our best. I'm Claire Martin and you've been listening to the Strong, Single and Human podcast.